Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. morning we're going to be in Isaiah 59 and the last time before the holidays when we were in Isaiah the message was titled in Isaiah 58 religious hypocrisy and that's really important uh, especially for people who are seeking they run into things they're turned off to God but they don't realize that these people are not good representatives of God so God doesn't like it either. So if you experienced that and you had some questions and you had some bad experiences in a church, definitely uh, get that message because don't blame God for what people do in their hypocrisy. Uh, this morning, the message is titled, Sin Separates But God, which is one of the best phrases in the entire scripture, but God, or give God a chance to do something here. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about in the Israelites, because contextually, Isaiah 59 is speaking about Israel's captivity in Babylon, which is a historical fact. We know that from history. Uh, in addition to that, we're going to speak about, in general, how sin separates, right? And why, what is the need for Christ? Now, there is a, a study, believe it or not, of the doctrine of sin, and that's called hamartiology, which come from hamartia, which is from the original Koine Greek that the Bible was written in. It's very fascinating. I'll get into just a little bit of that. And then just give you kind of four facets of what sin is, and then jump into the message. So definition, sin really literally means to miss the mark. God is perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. Um, <laughs> origin started way back in Genesis and humankind fell into this temptation, this sin, this rebellion against God, and that ca caused all the problems we see today in the human race is caused from those events that happened thousands of years ago. So you got your, your definition, your origin, also type. What, what, is, what types of sin? Well, we, you hear the word iniquity, you hear the word sin, you hear the word transgression. Transgression means to go across. It's really purposely, God says this, and a person does the opposite anyway. Um, and then there's unwitting sin. People commit sins without realizing it. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, they had sacrifices for sins that people committed, and they didn't realize it. So God had to cover that as well. That leaves us with the last point about sin is, and you know what? Knowledge is power. People have questions. Maybe they went to a church where they were always sin, sin, pointing fingers, and we don't do that, but when it comes up in Scripture, we discuss it. So the last part, L, is link, right? Sin is an interesting thing, and the way it works is that it's almost as if to get to heaven, there's a, a link of a chain, right? And use a metaphor here, and there's all these links to us, and below us is judgment, punishment for sin. All it takes is one of those links on the chain to break for us not to get to heaven, and that's why God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus covered all of those. 
the purposeful sin, the unwitting sin, even as Christians, when we should be sinning less, but we still sin, Christ covered that too. And that's the good news. And that's the but God in the title. You know, when we mess up, God always has a solution for us. And I love that about him. One of the many things I love about him. But we're going to look at this in five parts. So we'll jump in to Isaiah 59, verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. Remember, these are metaphors that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins, has separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So one out of five is that sin separates us from God. In the opening, we explain what sin is. And then here's a situation where the Israelites, as a, as a, a nation, where the culture was so decadent that they put themselves in these consequences, the invasion of the Babylonians, and God didn't answer their prayers. Well, God, why don't you wipe out the Babylonians? So in a sense, they're saying to God, well, God is saying, my ear is, I'm not deaf. <laughs> my hand is not weak. I could do these things, but you put yourself in this situation. Now, let's look at the context in the last chapter, because Isaiah is supposed to be one thought, all 66 chapters, right? The context is that the people were doing religious observances and they demanded and expected God to answer their prayers. There's even some type of a, a pseudo-Christianity where you can demand God answer your prayers and you can do these formulas to get him to answer your prayers. God is not a genie in the bottle. He's a, a thoughtful, intellectual being, right? And he's made us in his image. So we can't fool him. We can't manipulate him. We can't trick him into doing these things. So this actually broaches the subject of unanswered prayer. Now we're going to delve into a, a, a portion that people ask, well, why do some prayers get answered and some don't? Understand, there's a lot of different reasons for unanswered prayers. But today, because of the context, we're just going to cover the specific reason of sin separating us and causing a jamming of the signal, so to speak. So for the nation, their collective sin separated them from God. Psalm 66, 18, it says, if I, is a different NIV, if I cherished sin in my heart, then the Lord will not hear. So in other words, you know, if we... If we're actively participating, it's something that we choose to do, we're, we're transgressing, the Lord's not going to reward bad behavior. So let me give you an example, and it's hyperbole, it's an exaggeration, because when I say it, you'll understand why it's hyperbole. So let's just say that Pastor Joe leaves church, and he's having a rough afternoon, and somebody on the road ticks him off, and there's this road rage incident, and Pastor Joe and this other person get out, and they're scuffling. And while I'm assaulting the guy, I actually pray, you know what, Lord, I hope the cops don't show up. <laughs> Do you think that God's going to answer that prayer? By the way, that didn't happen. There is a police officer in the lobby, so let me just make sure that's clear. Uh, but it's, it's hyperbole, it's exaggeration. God does not reward evil. Okay, so let's, let's look at that. But in the broader context, sin separates us from God, and that's why Jesus had to die for our sins. Now, one of the best expressions I've heard about this is that you've got God in his perfection, you've got sinful flesh, you've got sinful man, men, women. And there's this 
we want to get to him, but there's, there's no road. The bridge is out. There's this huge chasm. And we look down and we, we look at flashlights and stuff, and there's just no bottom to it. There's no way for us to get to God. Well, Jesus became that bridge by dying for our sins, by propitiation, by the justice being served for evil and for sins. He took that on the cross. So in a sense, and I've heard this said, whether it's the cross itself or Jesus's body covers those two irreconciled parties and covers that chasm so now we can get to God. Why? Because God got to us first, because he so loved the world. He was the first cause agent in this situation. He decided, I love my, my creation so much, and even though they're separated from me, let me take the first action, and that was by sending his son to die for our sins. Pretty interesting. It's scientific. It's logical. There's, it's lawful. There's a lot of things to this. Continuing on, verse 3. It says, for your hands, now he's speaking to the the nation and the culture, what they've become. Now, they're supposed to be God's people, right? Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch. Now, look at the metaphors here. A lot of metaphors. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. So two out of five this morning is the details of the impetus for the broken relationship between the nation of Israel and their God. So a few things were happening here. Let's look at this. Verse 3. It says that, well, their hands and their mouth were doing evil things. Right? Jesus tells us that our mouths are a reflection of our heart. Before I was a Christian and doing things I shouldn't have been doing, I was in a scene where a lot of people were intoxicated. And they would say things while in that state. And then the next day, they wondered why there was a broken relationship. And they would apologize. But I submit to you, when you're drunk or you're high, parts of the brain are shut off that should be check valves to your mouth. So a lot of times what people say when they are intoxicated, because there's not that check valve anymore, and there's a whole scientific reason for that, is that that's really how they feel. But the good news is that people can change. That's the good news, okay? So I'm going to give you the rough news, but I'm also going to give you the good news. And through Christ, people can do a complete 180. Also, their hands and their actions were a reflection of their heart. I always say that behavior follows belief. You will do things with your hands and your feet and your mind and your computer and your bank account based on your belief system, right? You'll act it out in your actions. Four, God is a God of justice, and the people were trying to pervert justice. There was a two-tiered justice system where the common man would suffer the consequences of, his, of the law, but the elites and those controlling society pretty much got away with murder. Two-tiered justice system. We'll talk more about that as well. What's worse is that the people and the leaders pretended to care about justice because it was in God's word. Again, hypocrisy. They pretended, but they didn't practice it which made it worse. Verse 5, you had the evil actions, and then you had, in addition to the actions, you had the plotting of evil. 
the plotting of evil, which actually made it worse. Today, being a former police officer, in our jurisprudence system, we have terms, whether it's New Jersey or New York Penal Code or whatever, national. um, You have words like conspiracy, premeditation, versus heat of the moment and crimes of passion. So the plotting is actually worse. I mean, it's still a sin if you lose your mind and you get angry and you harm somebody. But it's even worse when you take months to plot someone's demise. So God is going right to the heart of the culture. What's the issue here? Yes, there were crimes, right? Today we have the FBI crime statistics. But there were also things that happened before the crimes were committed. The plotting of evil. God's exposing it all. Now, this is a neat thing because God is a fair God. He's a loving God. And what he does is he tries to show us where we go wrong so that, he, so that we can look at it and hopefully we can correct it. We can cry out to him. We'll see that later on in the chapter and, and turn to him and look for his solutions because our solutions aren't working. Sin is a spiritual disease and it seeks to alienate, and alienate us from our God. It seeks to destroy us, but it often starts by deceiving us. And I'll tell you this, that when I sin, you know, whether it's a, something I'm conjuring up in my mind that maybe I never do, but it's still a sin because um, even Jesus said. Why did Jesus say this? You know, if you think about murder or you think about hurting someone, you've committed murder in your heart. What Jesus was trying to show us is that we need a savior. So for the, for the crowd that thought, well, it's in my mind, I didn't actually do it. Jesus is saying it's still sin. In, in your heart, in your mind, you're still sinning. You're still missing you know the love of your of your brothers and sisters the love of god and you're plotting to harm somebody even though you may not actually act it out so what jesus was showing is we're hopeless without him we're hopeless without a savior but i'll tell you that pastor joe the same thing if i think about something long enough part of me kind of says and i you know whatever it's i'm alone i talk to myself and 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 I'll say, you're an idiot, Joe. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll catch myself and say, are you kidding me? Because what do we do when we sin? We try to now, we try to justify it. We try to cover it. Now, God, the Bible speaks about justification. He talks about how he can make us righteous through Christ. But we also have a type of, it's a perverted type of justification where we do something sinful and then we make excuses for it. Right? We try to make excuses, we try to cover it, we try to make it seem reasonable to our peer group so that they don't think less of us. So there's a whole lot of deception that goes on with sin. right? And this is why we have to understand that Christ is the cure. Because I can tell you this, even as a pastor, if God said, okay, you can start from right now, I still couldn't save myself. I still need Christ. So we look at these metaphors, the the snakes and the spiders, and it's a little creepy, but uh, it really paints the picture of what God thinks of what people do when they plot, they premeditate, they commit the sin, they harm somebody else made in God's image, and then they cover it up. Pretty nasty. Now, we continue on. I'm going to read 6 again because it's kind of a a mooring, uh, an anchor to both sections. So 6, their webs will not become garments They won't become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, 
and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. So three, eventually the peace and the so-called happiness, the happiness trap, is removed when you stay in that sinful condition long enough in one way or the other. So that's three. I'll look at uh, First Kings. If you remember the story from the Old Testament in First Kings, Naboth, he was a nice guy, right? He had a vineyard. And the king, Ahab, said, well, you know, your vineyard's beautiful. It's right next to my palace. I kind of want to annex it. So how about I give you something else, and I'll, I'll really make it worth your while. And Naboth says, listen, it's been in the family for a long time. So the king, he's spoiled brat. He goes home, and he sulks, and his evil wife <laughs> talks him into uh, basically using false witnesses to, you know, to say that Naboth did or said something, and they end up killing the guy, right? Because, really, because he wouldn't sell his vineyard. Sort of a, a old version of eminent domain, right? We see the government, if they really want your land, they'll probably end up taking it. Uh, but so nothing really changes in thousands of years. But verse 6, we see more insight into this self-deception. It says, he says, their webs will not become garments. They will not cover themselves with their works. Remember what I talked about justification. I talked about covering, making it look good from the outside. God's like, I see everything. And your sins will seek you out, the Bible also says. So it's more into that self-deception. It robs the sinful of peace. Peace is used twice here. Let me give you a, and this is good because there's our justification, which is usually wrong, and then there's God's justification, right? Let's know the terms. If we could put up Romans 5, 1 through 2, it's a great portion of Scripture. I say that all the time, don't I? (laughs) It's all good stuff. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, this is believing in Christ and what he did on the cross for our sins, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So this is a different type of peace. See, people may say, well, I'm a real spiritual person. You know, everybody wants to get to God on their own standards, not really concerned what God thinks. But if you haven't had your sins paid for, you haven't trusted in that sacrifice, you you really have no connection with God, according to the scripture. God has one standard, and it's fair for everyone, which is a good thing. You know, when I was young, I I bought a a fixer-upper, a house early. I, I fixed it up, and I bought the car that I wanted. I got the job that I wanted. Like, I was going places in my 20s. And I kept trying to do things to find that American dream, that peace, that contentment. And you know what? I still was robbed of it. There was a a God-shaped vacuum or void in my heart that needed to be filled. And until I found Christ, that was when I knew true peace. Let's look at another scripture when we talk about this peace. John 14, 27. What does Jesus say in John 14, 27? He tells his disciples, remember, he's going to the cross soon. 
He's going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend into heaven. So that whole tangibility is not going to be there for them. So he's teaching them a lot of things before he departs. He says, peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let your... Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So this is the Lord's peace. What is the world's peace? The world's peace, and I've said this before, I uh, look at my bank account online, there's money in it. You know, uh, nobody's at odds with me. Everybody's happy with me. No one's mad at me. This is the world's peace. It has to do with external. It has to do with circumstances. The Lord's peace has to do with the inside. So the house could be, Rome could be burning. All these things could be happening. But the peace that God wants to give us is to settle our hearts that we're good from the inside, regardless of what's going on on the outside. Now, the Bible tells us that this coming globalist or antichrist is going to set up a false peace in the world. And the world is going to love this guy. He's going to have high approval ratings. Barna and all these polls will be, he'll be off the charts with approval. And then suddenly after that comes destruction. And the world will be plunged into these, these revelation judgments that we see. Terrible things. But this man, you know, the humanist, the globalist, whatever. We really don't have true peace unless we have Christ. That's a fact. So just so you know that for me, um, I was witness to plenty of times while I was in the world. And I kept saying to myself, let me try this one more thing. Let me try it my way. Because who really wants to give their life control to somebody else? But once you find God, you realize that he only has our best interest in heart. So eventually I kind of ran out of all my Joe <laughs> plans, up to one, two, three, all the way down the line. And eventually I gave my heart to the Lord and I said to myself, why didn't I do this sooner? You know, and then you have that peace, you have that joy that the Lord promises. Verse 9, we continue in Isaiah. It says, therefore, this is kind of like the crescendo here. Therefore, justice is far from us. Look, look at the words used. Us, we, okay? It's the people and their thoughts and their, their repentance. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. Doesn't matter. Darkness, light, doesn't matter. Uh, we are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, our sins, we know them. We know what we did. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil, he makes himself a prey to the, to the culture, to the society. So when we look at this section, four out of five, is that the people finally come to terms with their sin. Maybe it's a supernatural work. Maybe it's not everybody. But here's the interesting thing about the prophets. The prophets would speak about, well, what is God saying? 
You know, God tells the prophets, write it down, tell the people. He, he was like a, an interest, a mediator intercessor. The prophets also spoke for themselves on rare occasions, what they were thinking at the time, but they didn't focus on themselves. The prophets also spoke for the people. So you see this back and forth, this reasoning between God and his collective people. Remember, God wants us to do right. He, he's, you know, again, some ministries or teachings don't really represent that. You know, God wants to squash you like a bug. That's not true. God shows us these things so that we can kind of work it out in our minds and our hearts and say, you know, do I want to continue down this path or do I want to turn to God? One of the things I love about God, in addition to his love and his promises and eternal life, is the fact that he reasons with us. See what I'm saying? He reasons with us. So verse 9, they're admitting that they're walking in spiritual darkness and they're coming to the right conclusion to the question they asked in the beginning. Lord, why are you not intervening? God reveals it to them. He speaks about it. They say, yeah, we see it in our culture. And they come full circle. It's really pretty neat if you think about that. Um, listen, a good, a good counselor, I've done some counseling. A good counselor will be a good listener. They'll also give you some action items that you can take with you and help to make your situation better. But a good counselor will also ask you questions. Some people say, I went to this counselor and they asked me a bunch of questions. I didn't come there, you know, for them to ask me questions. I'm asking them questions. But what that does is it's a technique that teaches the person to work out their own problems. It's pretty neat, isn't it? Now, a good counselor, when that person stumbles and they, they can't get to the next step, will help them. But you, you, you don't want to do as a counselor all the work for the person that's coming in. You want them to do a lot of the work themselves because it's their life. You can't, like, remember the movie, What About Bob? Like, you can't be with them all the time. So they have to go home, and with them and God and the Word, they have to work it out. So you see kind of like that happening here, and it's great. Verse 10 they admit that not only is the, as a nation has gone to wickedness, but they themselves have gone to spiritual blindness. Jesus speaks in the scripture of the religious system, the religious hypocrites who had this spiritual blindness. And he said to them, your blindness is willful. You want to be stuck where you are because it benefits you. You're not leading these people to God. So it's a lot of metaphors. Were they literally blind? No. The optic nerve was severed or whatever. No, it was a spiritual condition that they had. And that's what you have. Verse 11, two more metaphors used for the consequences of sin. He, they say we all growl like bears. Well, that doesn't sound like a pleasant thing. You can see a picture of anger. You can see a picture of fear. And those things are actually very closely associated, anger and fear. Uh, and we moan sadly like doves, you know. Walking in darkness brings sadness, it brings regret, it brings hopelessness. Verse 12 and 13, they bemoan the fact that pretty much every facet of their life has been steeped in this sin. And they've distanced themselves, they admit to the God that we've distanced ourselves, uh, we distance ourselves from you. Let me just say this, regret and remorse are good, but don't stay there. Judas stayed there. And we saw at the end of Judas. The apostle Peter also sold out the Lord. He also denied the Lord, right? He also was, had regret and remorse. But he moved to the next section or the next stage, which is 
repentance and restoration. Good, Peter. And he became one of the pillars of the church. You know, I've been in situations where I've been ashamed. Let me tell you something. This is probably one of the most uncomfortable things to ever experience. But when you try to cover it, and it just makes it worse. You just give it up, and then you let the Lord work in your life. So that's what what's really needs to happen here. Verse 14 through 15, I'll just go to the core of what was going on in society. It says that justice, truth, righteousness have taken major hits in their culture. And you know what? In any culture where the Bible is preached, we should look at our culture as well. Where are we when it comes to these three? So let's look at these. Truth is removed. When there's no truth in a culture, when there's no truth in a society, everything becomes a lie. It becomes fake. It becomes an attack on our sense of understanding, wisdom, reasoning, and intelligence. Right? When truth is removed. You ever try to, well, you ever see somebody tries to manipulate another person and they go, what do you think, I'm stupid? Right? It's an insult. Do you think I'm that ignorant that you could do that to me or make me believe that? So this is what happens when truth is removed. Are you kidding me? We, we, we have a society that's moving towards these, the absence of these three as well. Truth. What is truth, Pilate asked to Jesus. Justice is removed. Everything becomes unfair. It becomes an attack on our God-given sense of liberty, equality, which we enjoy in the United States, and even those pushing egalitarianism. You can't have those things if justice is removed. It's a farce. If righteousness is removed, think about this, everything becomes cold, it becomes evil, it becomes godless. It's an attack on our sense of good and our sense of purpose. And then the attitude when these three things are taken out, why bother? Why bother doing anything when these three things are not evident in a culture? And Jesus tells us that as Christians, we should be preserving influences in any culture that we're a part of. Even the unbeliever here, or even those who were in sin, start to struggle when truth, justice, and righteousness are taken from them. Not a good thing. Verse 15 He says that he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So the few that were left, that were good, the remnant, that stood up to the culture, they made themselves a prey, meaning that they became public enemy number one. Now, there's a big push in our culture to move us towards socialism and communism. And I can tell you that if you study, you know, I got a good education at Rutgers. I studied forms of government, economics, and I can tell you something. The first ones to be purged are usually the Christians. We have to get the sense of morality out of here because we want our humanistic utopia to dominate. It's scary what we're starting to experience in our culture. People are not, you know, I don't know if it's the lack of education Uh, the need for revival in this country, probably all of those things. When free will to choose good in this situation is removed, then only disillusionment, disenfranchisement, and despondency is left. It sets in. Right? little anecdote here. So, this is a true story, and it was recent. There was a teacher in Port St. Lucie, Florida, maybe some of you have heard this, who her students... They went to hand in their work, their you know, homework and projects and stuff. When they didn't hand it in and they gave, they gave nothing back to the teacher, the teacher gave them zeros. Well, the school fired her. Yes, this is a true story. This is what's going on in our culture. Because it might offend their sensibilities. It might hurt their self-esteem. 
the school's response was, now check it out, the parents complained. Instead of disciplining their kids, they complained about the teachers, and the teacher was fired. So the school's attitude was, well, we don't give anything less than a 50% on anything, even if it's not turned in. Well, what do you think those kids are going to grow up to be like? Well, first of all, the parents are a problem that they complained. And secondly, the school's a problem. And I think we're starting to see some of that in our culture. Entitlement, selfishness, and this, these things are becoming rampant. My way or the highway, the lack of, of debate and the ability to convince somebody of your side, but instead insult them or ex- assault them or excoriate them. You know what? Sometimes, folks, God gives zeros. <laughs> There's been times I've gotten zeros on my work. And you know what the message to me from God is? Do better. Do better. And that's hopefully we, we overcome when we're faced with a situation where we failed or we've done wrong or we've sinned. Well, what's the idea? Not to lay in it and to just kind of flounder. It's to do better, to overcome. Continuing on, verse 15, the second part of 15, right? And there's a, there's a gap in the scripture on purpose because now it's the Lord's response. Then the Lord saw it and it displeased him. There was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. There was no person interceding between a messed up culture and a loving and holy God wanting his prodigals to come back. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Now, I'm going to explain some of the, because we're moving into a different era, and that's what the prophetic books do. Verse 17, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, according, accordingly, he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay, so shall they fear. The name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant, my agreement, my testament with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. So five out of five is the Lord's response to this whole thing. Right? Verse 15 through 16, God marveled. Now, there was always a remnant, but he marveled in general how there were so few that were being that preserving influence in that culture. Where's the revival? Where's the intercessors? We could ask that same question today in the United States. Do we want to be a part of the solution? Or do we want to just complain by what we see on TV? Complain, complain, and not actually do anything. Chapter 9 in Job, he lamented the, the lack of a mediator between God and man. Jesus later fulfilled that void, being the perfect mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And now the cool thing, as Christians, we have the ability to intercede by way of the Holy Spirit for a lost and dying world. My greatest pleasure, one of my greatest pleasures in life is to speak to somebody, maybe who's an atheist or even a Satanist, and to actually start engaging them. 
right? Oh, you, 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 I'm not afraid of that stuff. I don't care. Bring it on. I'll go into a whole room with them. And I just trying to engage them and try to explain to them who God is and try to start peeling away the layers of the onion and bring them closer to their God who loves them. You know what I'm saying? So that's an exciting thing to be an intercessor. Jesus mused. Jesus mused while he was on the earth. And he said, when the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he find faith? That's a powerful statement. Why would he say something like that? Because probably by the time he comes, his second coming, things are going to be really, really, really bad. Verse 16 through 17, nobody stepped up to the plate, so God had to do it himself. Now, for those that are maybe new to the church, new to the teachings of the Bible, or a seeker, you know what you need to know today? God loves you. I'm giving you all the nuts and bolts of why Jesus had to come, what he actually did on the cross so that you could have eternal life. That's awesome. In these prophetic messages, they're very, very deep. And I got to tell you, when I started teaching Isaiah, I, and I, I romanticized the idea of teaching the prophet Isaiah. And then when I really got into it, I'm like, whoa, what did I get myself into? It's a learning curve because you, you see God speaking through Isaiah. He's, God sees everything. I'm going to tell you what's happening now. I'm going to tell you what's happening 100 years from now, 2,000 years from now, eternity. This is the way God works, and it's a learning curve. But it's good. Everybody can get used to it. So you have the simple things, and then you have some of the deeper things. So if you're brand new, don't worry about some of the terms. Definitely ask me, though. What did you mean by that, Pastor Joe? I don't understand that term that you kept saying. I have no problem explaining it. So some believe that, well, yes, God was dealing with, and and we get all the way to the part in our 2019, January 2019, our Earth's future we don't know what it is. A year down the road, 10 years, don't know. This whole global movement, everything is, is cohesive. The Antichrist, the globalist, rises up from that. Uh, and you can see it in all the prophetic books, especially Daniel. And he starts to take over. But when the Lord comes back, he's going to uh, destroy the Antichrist armies. He's going to come back physically again. And uh, he's going to stop them from completely taking over Israel and invading Jerusalem and, you know, doing horrible things. Uh, But, you know, we can see everything lining up. Look at the Golan Heights today. Look right over the Golan Heights. Iran, who hates Israel, is over there. Uh, The Syrians, you have uh, all kinds of different groups that are trying to squash Israel, trying to push further. Um, You know, when you start really reading history and then you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, you start reading some of Isaiah, you can see the winds are changing. The leaders in Israel's they're not, you know, godly, necessarily godly people, but they're, they're fearful. They're afraid. The Russians are at their doorstep. There's a lot of things that are going on that we, you know what, what our media is obsessed with is garbage. You got to look outside some of this stuff and see what's going on across our shores that can seriously affect us. China's really flexing her muscle militarily uh, in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, just the, the subs and the, and the planes and stealing secrets and, you know, the hackings. Um, there's some tensions that are going on in this, in this country that, if you read the scripture, the United States seems to be less of a player, almost as we become a little bit isolationist. And then you see everything happening over in the Middle East, Israel, uh, Revelation speaks about the rise of the, uh, the Asian armies that are coming westward. It's fascinating. The Bible is never wrong. And we are living in a time, if you read the news, like overseas news, 
that we've never seen this before. So don't fear. Be excited because the Lord's going to come back and take his church with him before everything just goes to hell, to use a figure of speech. So there's a lot going on here. Um, God had to allow his people, let's go back 7th century B.C., to allow their sins and consequences to affect them. And then he, he, when they're repentant, he saves them. He sends the Persians in. They take over from the Babylonians. Uh, Israel's freed, goes back to Jerusalem. So there's a lot that's going on here. But it's interesting, uh, he speaks and he touches on what we see in Ephesians 6, right? The spiritual armor, the helmet of salvation, the, the breastplate of righteousness, you know, the waist and, uh, you know, the shield, uh, all, all these things that are happening. Uh, and we can actually don those spiritual weapons, not literal, to do spiritual battle, to help people to see their need for Christ, to pray for our culture. I pray on a regular basis for, for my country. I love my country. But I'm seeing some things that are just very disturbing. We need to be praying for our country, our communities, our families, our church. Uh, verse 19, he speaks about the flood. Daniel 9 speaks about the flood. Revelation 12 speaks about the flood. And it was always understood as the flood of these armies that are going to come against Israel. So heavy stuff here. Um, the last battle, pretty powerful things. Uh, verses 17 through 21, I pretty much covered that. Um, he's speaking, the prophet is speaking from the 7th century B.C. all the way, overshoots 2019 to a near future um, when these things are going to take place. So it's eschatology. It's, it's pretty heavy stuff. Okay, <laughs> take a deep breath. All right, Isaiah 59, 21. What is he speaking about here? He's talking about the new covenant. And, you know, the Lord would constantly speak about this new covenant, this New Testament. Uh, Isaiah 59 speaks about it. Jeremiah 31 speaks about it. Uh, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10 speaks about this new covenant that God will create. And that was the covenant in Christ. So remember, this was written roughly 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. So this is anticipating it. We're looking back to it. A lot of, a lot of pretty neat stuff. The title, <laughs> Sin Separates But God. And folks, we were presented with a problem this morning. Well, actually, the Israelites were. Thank God they overcame it. Um, but in our culture, it's the same thing. Sin separates. It separates us from God. You know, we can't be living a, a godly life or a life of true peace and joy, first of all, if we don't know Christ, and second of all, if we're purposely flouting God's precepts and laws. But some people, and on any given Sunday we have seekers, they may not want to hear about sin. Um, you know, our church is not mean-spirited. We don't point fingers and shout about it. We educate. However, being offended by the concept of sin doesn't cease to make it a fact. Let's just keep that in mind. The facts don't care about our feelings. But with every problem, every tragedy, God always provides a solution. 2,000 years ago, he provided his son, Jesus Christ. So if you want to boil all this down to make it really simple, there's sin. We, we certainly got an education this morning about sin. However, Jesus came to cover those sins. He came to destroy those sins. Use whatever word you want. He came to pay for those sins. 
he came to take the justice of God's jurisprudence that someone has to be punished for those sins. He took that. He was the propitiation for sin. He appeased the righteous God who he looks down at the world and sees it marred with sin, sort of like what what happened here, but on a grander scale. And what he did was he went on that cross and Peter thought that he might help Jesus out and pull a sword out and fight off the guards and Jesus like, stop it. I could call down legions of angels if I wanted to. I have to do this because God so loved the world and so did his son and so did the Holy Spirit. And when he sent his son into this world, this all becomes fixed. When I go to sleep at night, I repent. I say, you know what, Lord, I, I failed in this area, but I go to sleep peacefully. I don't worry about judgment. I don't worry about when I stop breathing, when I die, that I don't know where I'm going to go. God has promised me eternal life because I've trusted in Christ. So if there's anything that I want to get through this morning is that if you truly understand the message of, of the cross, you won't have fear. Don't let anything I say give you nightmares because Christ already took the nightmare, your nightmare, my nightmare on the cross so that you could have eternal life. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.